So you may have noticed that we've changed our name and artwork, and if you haven't been following us on social media, that might be a little bit confusing. So I will read what we posted on there just to catch everyone up. For those of you who don't know, our podcast name was a reference to Marilyn Manson's original band name, Marilyn Manson and the Spooky Kids. In light of recent allegations, we no longer wish to associate our work with his. We believe victims, and we do not want our content to even slightly honor an abuser. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us through this name change. It's been kind of emotional to change, but it is really exciting, and we've got some good stuff coming your way. And our artwork is new and better than ever. It was designed by Dinah Mo. You can find her on Instagram at Nobody's Sweetheart, all one word. She's super talented and great to work with. So go ahead and uh, talk to her about any commissions you have in the future. On a bit of a lighter note, I just wanted to mention we got a complaint from a VIP listener that I didn't do much talking last episode. Uh, I want to assure them that given this is my mandate, I'll be doing with the majority of the talking. So buckle up for that. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is our Warped Podcast. This week's mandate is Walker, and he chose a book, Burnt Offerings, by Robert Morasco. Chapter 1 of Burnt Offerings opens with David Rolf, a 8-year-old boy, trying to put away his clothes while his mother Marion watches over him, making sure that things are put away just as she would prefer them to be. David leaves for school, and we get a little bit of an insight into Marion's day-to-day with the intrusion of piano from apartment 2D, which I believe is below them. Uh, The sound and the colliding rhythms add to the overall cramped, loud, and generally claustrophobic feeling that the author is giving to New York City. We cut to Ben, who is the father, and he is, I believe, in his mid-30s. I believe Marion is also in her mid-30s. In this scene, Ben is attempting to park his Camaro, which they, for some reason, call a compact vehicle. I don't know if I agree with that, but neither here nor there. Uh, However, when he returns from lunch, he can't seem to find where he parked, and uh, from the looks of it, has to walk home. When he gets back to the apartment, he admits to Marion that he has lost the Camaro, and there's comments about him potentially on the verge of a mental break of some kind, although it's also alluded that this might not be, or might not potentially be, his first. So that is one of those things that doesn't really get touched on much, uh, or if this there was a previous quote-unquote episode, there's no real concrete mention of it, so kind of a weird, I don't know if red herring is the right term, but a bit of a misdirection there. little side note, for anyone who may not have grown up on the East Coast and was wondering what uh, Yankee Doodles are, they are apparently a sort of hostess cupcake competitor that are produced by the Drake Baking Company, which was founded in 1896. I'm not sure if it predates hostess, but it is, from what I can tell, it is at least a New York-specific, if not New York City-specific company. So from what I could find, they are pretty well-known throughout the, the East Coast of the U.S. Yankee Doodle lore. What's that, Chris? <laughs> what? You said Yankee Doodle lore. Oh. <laughs> World building. Yes. World building, well, yeah. <laughs> there, there were just a few things that, and, you know, this book was written in 1973, and... 
there are inherently going to be things that a modern reader who may not have grown up in that period just wouldn't know about. So this is one of those things that I kind of wanted to delve a little bit into to, to get some, some insight and just kind of bring out a little bit of the uh, that um, description because, quite honestly, it's it's almost like a part of David because it gets mentioned a lot when he's ever around. You know, it's one of those things that he's either eating one or there's the mention that he's probably wanting to, to have one. So it's really part of his character, if we want to get specific. He is an eight-year-old kid, so that's understandable. I imagine them looking like, uh, before I knew what they were, I imagine them looking like um, the snowballs. Mm. I don't know why, but I was imagining like Cracker Jack, like the uh, caramel popcorn. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because of like the, the baseball kind of... I don't know. Yeah. All right. If you listen this far, uh, why don't you hit us up on our socials and let us know what you guys thought that Yankee Doodles are. Made it this far. It's like a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to build an interaction here. Thank you for continuing to listen to our Yankee Doodle lore. This is a Yankee Doodle podcast now. (laughs) I am glad I know what it is now. So that's good. Another quick side note. I wanted to mention the parquet floors that they describe in the apartment. Uh, I wanted to know more about this specific design, and I guess it originated in France during the 1700s, and the word roughly means to cut and fit small pieces of wood together to create flooring in a room. And this would be, it's sort of a general description, so herringbone floors would fall into this under this category as well. Um, if anyone is a interior designer, you might already know that, but for those of you who did not, I just wanted to make that clear. Or worked in the Home Depot flooring department like your boy. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> I'm an insider on the industry. Yes, <laughs> a true professional like me. Yeah. <laughs> Going further into some more uh, character building here, we have Marion seeming to be rather concerned about aging. Uh, she happens to be looking out for gray hairs after, I, th- I believe, maybe in the past year she'd found four or five at one time, and that was, I guess, particularly alarming. Just just wait, Marion. She doesn't even know. She's <laughs> going to be so shocked. But to circle back to Ben's quote-unquote breakdown, he seems to not really think highly of himself. There are multiple mentions in this first chapter where either assumes somebody's thinking him to be an idiot or he's outright called an idiot and it's it's kind of interesting I, I don't really know where that comes from we don't really get more of that but he seems to not have a whole lot of self-esteem we're not really sure if when he, he says he's on the verge of a breakdown if he's trying to be funny or if, if it's serious and they're just sort of being funny because it's better to be funny about it than to rather take it seriously who knows but Either way, it is uh, interesting and something that unfortunately does not really get brought back until really the end of the the book. So kind of in conjunction with uh, Ben's mention of a mental decline, Marion is able to convince him to drive out of the city and look at a few vacation spots that she's picked out for them to spend their summer in. And the chapter ends with Ben remembering the exact spot that he parked the Camaro, which is good because they need a vehicle. Moving on to chapter two, we are told that Ben is reluctant to move out of the city because of his Aunt Elizabeth, and he's really 
the only one out of the three that are not as interested. Although, I suppose David doesn't really have much of a say, and he is eight years old, so it seems like he's rather flexible and doesn't really have too much um, to be against leaving the city. Aunt Elizabeth is Ben's only living relative. She is in her mid-70s and currently lives by herself and seems to be taking relatively good care of herself, is fairly independent, and has a, on the outset, a very busy social life. In the opening of this chapter, we're introduced to the house on 17 Shore Road, which appears to be the only house on that road, or one of the only houses. It is from the size and of the property, as well as the home itself, would appear to be beyond the Ralph's budget, but It's in somewhat bad shape, and they consider that the cottage on the property to be maybe what they're actually renting. The house itself is described as cathedral. Um, It also has a very grand driveway that seems to be nearly half a mile, which makes sense. It is 200 acres, so there's a lot of property to get through, I would assume, in order to actually reach the, the home. When they finally stop the car and... David and Ben get out to sort of explore. David comes back and says that he saw a three-wheeler bike in the yard that was covered in dry blood, which is a little bit of a strange thing for a kid to say. He seemingly said it with all seriousness, so I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. Nothing really happens because of it. It's just sort of mentioned and then that's it. Well, it's a little strange. When I first read it, I was uncertain of if it was childhood imagination, like seeing rust and calling it blood, but based on the rest of the novel, it probably was actually blood, but I was a pretty over-imaginative kid, and I definitely would have seen rust and been like, there's blood everywhere! (laughs) It's a really cool perspective, because I didn't even think that it could be rust, I just straight up took it at face value of it being blood. It might still be blood or might not be but um yeah i thought that was pretty creepy and at least foreshadowing something not going right yeah i think it is emblematic of david's active imagination and it's it's a good sign obviously being eight years old you hope that a kid would be able to have some imagination because that's i think a good part of sort of how you you grow up and and your your views of things might change but you've always got um those those childhood imaginings to kind of use as creative inspiration or some kind of slight daydream of of what what the future could be kind of getting a little bit deeper into what it what this dried blood could be i think that and this could be totally wrong but i think there's a specific maybe type of moss or lichen that secretes a a little red um ooze it could have been that too. Could be. A lot of potential. Yeah. No, it, it, it's, it could be any number of things. At the end of the day, it was definitely creepy. Yes. Yeah. And creepier still that Marion and Ben didn't have any sort of reaction. I thought it was weird that neither of them reacted at all. Even if it wasn't blood, I think as a parent, you would be like, whoa, what? Let's check it out or let's look at it. Um, but Ben just makes a joke about it being gorilla's blood or something, and I don't get the fascination with gorillas either. Like, that keeps coming up. I guess it's just, like, a cute thing him and David do, but what's with the, what's with the gorillas? Fair point. Yeah, it doesn't really lead anywhere. It just seems to be, like you said, an inside joke, so 
Who knows? It just kind of reminded me of an old John Mulaney bit where he's talking about how he walked out of his apartment and saw a wheelchair just like tipped over to its side. And he said, clearly something happened. I hope it was a miracle, but probably not. (laughs) That's good. All right. Moving on, we finally get introduced to another character. Although I say finally, but it's one that we don't really see much of. It is a character simply known as Walker. I swear I did not pick this book knowing that there was a character with my name in it. I just wanted to find a short book that was creepy, and this checked both of those boxes. So, happy coincidence. Uh, Although I will say that Grace and Chris have uh, rather good references that they can uh, pin their namesake to. Uh, Amazing Grace. Chris B. Cream. Um, Meanwhile, uh, what do I have? I I have Walker, Texas Ranger. (laughs) Uh, and and this old caretaker that accurately describes when a thing is busted, uh, not to be confused with bussin'. <laughs> oh, I gotta go. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. I did imagine Riff Raff from uh, Rocky Horror. Oh, nice. Always nice. Walker. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, like, Igor from, like... I think it's Igor. All right. <laughs> Igor. <laughs> that being said, um, and you might want to get a little closer to your speakers for this, I look nothing like Walker, Texas Ranger. And... Um, Prove it. It's 80% of the first or second thing out of most people's mouths when they meet me. Unfortunately, uh, growing up during a time when, for some reason, kids my age were circling back and thinking that the show and the character itself are cool. You know, everybody had t-shirts of weird feats associated with Walker, Texas Ranger, like him doing push-ups and pushing the earth down or just bizarre things of that nature. So anyway, that uh, is a little bit about me. There's worse things to be named after. It's true. Although I, I wasn't named after that character, so... Again, a little bit of a bamboozle there. Wow, now we get Walker lore. This is amazing. So you weren't named after Chuck Norris, just to be clear? Correct, correct. It was not named after that character. That's a bummer. So, that's, I mean, it is what it is. (laughs) There's a few people that constantly refer to me as Walker, Texas Ranger. So it's now become endearing. If it's just the first time we're meeting, I think it's irritating. But, you know, it takes time to, to be a little bit more of a uh, friendly thing, so. I was on the bus, and there was um, this family, and there was this really cute little boy with a family, and just by overhearing them talk to him, I learned that the boy's name was Walker, and then they kept calling him Walkie, and it was so cute. That's adorable. So now I want to call you Walkie. Should we call you Walkie from now? Okay. No, thank you. We'll try again later. No, child. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we meet Walker, and he introduces himself to the Rolfs and explains that he is the caretaker of this estate. The chapter ends with Ben and Marion looking over a wall of photos that appear to be the exact same taking of the property in pristine condition, and from what they describe, it appears to be in different time periods given the style of picture changes. There's black and white, sepia, and eventually full color, I believe. So somewhat interesting there, although it makes sense if somebody who owned the property for generations will want to capture its physical appearance throughout the decades, but the fact that it most recently seemed to have been 
in pristine condition to now degraded to really a, a shadow of its former self is somewhat puzzling, but clearly we'll get further into that as the book goes on. So those are the first two chapters. Again, we have just those four characters. We have Ben, David, Mirian, and Walker. So and Aunt I, Elizabeth. I'm sorry, excuse me, yes. And technically five, we have Aunt Elizabeth as our fifth character. So uh, before we move on to the next few chapters, I wanted to briefly talk about David. Do you guys have, I know there, there's not much to go on, but do you guys have anything specific you want to say about David as a character? He seems like just kind of an average little boy. He's got a lot of imagination and a lot of energy, but he seems to really love his parents. Yeah. Definitely a what you would expect of an eight-year-old boy. He likes riding bikes. He likes being messy and, you know, not listening to his parents. He likes gorillas. He likes gorillas. He likes... What are they called? Yankee Doos? Yankee Doodly Doos? Yankee Doodles. Yankee Doodles. Yeah, he likes those. And he likes Hot Wheels. Yeah, we find out later that he is quite the avid fan of Hot Wheels, which, who wasn't? It sort of transcends age and and gender. It's just a, a fun, fun thing. It's simple, you know? I didn't know they were that old. I thought they were kind of a, an 80s or 90s thing. No, Hot Wheels, and there were other... I'm forgetting, but there's... Uh, people that collect those like die-cast vehicles, and there was another brand before Hot Wheels. Matchbox? I, yeah, well, Matchbox, I think, is probably the same time period, but um, those two people have going back to, I think, even the 50s or 60s, so it's it's one of those mainstays now in, in modern America. I'm glad that they're still around, to be quite honest. We have some. Yes, we do. Ooh. Maybe we'll take a, a picture and show that off in, on our Instagram page. Yeah. Not in box, but just ones that we thought were cool and picked up recently within the past two years or so. We need some tracks. That we do. Do you have any Hot Wheels, Chris? I do not. I had a couple growing up, but I was always more into the uh, the Transformers that, you know, turn into giant robots. All right. So that pretty much wraps up the discussion on David. He's just your typical eight-year-old kid just having a good time in it for the vibes. Um, <laughs> nothing too unusual about him. So let's move on to chapter three. In chapter three, the Rolfs finally meet Roz Allardyce in person. She is briefly mentioned over the phone when Marion has a conversation with her about coming out to see the property. And Roz uh, is is rather rude to Walker, um, which I thought was a little bit puzzling, but he seemed to be used to it, so I suppose that's fair and understandable in that type of situation, but not great. So I also wasn't a huge fan of how she referred to Arnold, her brother, as brother. I think that's a little odd, but nonetheless, some people do that, I suppose, and who am I to say what's right and wrong? When... Mirian and Roz spoke on the phone. There was a, a lot of vague talk and when they were actually at the house. There's a lot of vague talk about the right kind of people renting the house, which is not apparently a race thing, and more about actually the their interest in, in the property and the antiques and the upkeep and everything of that nature. So I'm just going to believe that more 
wholesome uh, interpretation. Another thing that I didn't really care for about Roz, I know this seems like a roast session, but she refers to her mother as their sweet darling, uh, which I found pretty odd and undoubtedly creepy. Apparently all the antiques were collected uh, by the Allardyce matriarch, uh, and that seems a little bit incredible given that the house is centuries old. So when when asked directly, Walker can't really give an answer. He just says, who knows really? And that's kind of where they leave it as far as the, the age of the, the home and the property. There's also in this chapter the mention of an accident that has affected Arnold, Roz's brother, and set his health into further decline. Uh, we don't really know at this point what the specifics of that accident are, and I don't really know that we ever get a true mention, although there are things later on that might hint to it, but towards the middle of this chapter, we're finally introduced to Arnold, or brother, I'm going to call him Arnold, because I think saying brother is going to be confusing, and I don't really uh, want to do that, so that's me. <laughs> uh, but I, I found this this line on page 40 um, to be particularly hilarious, because in the context, and I'm sure when it was written, it didn't wasn't meant to be funny, but he says that he's always full of beans, and man, I, I, I laughed at that for, for about five minutes. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> it was... It was great, um, but you know I'm I'm immature, uh, so that's that's just me. But maybe other people uh, might have gotten a, a laugh out of that. That expression probably has something to do with reference to him having high energy and whatnot. But I just took it as him being flatulent. Of course, yep, yep, classic. Definitely not, not cool beans. I looked it up. It means full of energy and life, but in the U.S. it means not correct or truthful. So like full of. S-H-I-T. Oh. What does that spell? Full of four-letter word. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. I like the double meaning, because he yeah. kind of is. It could be. It could go both ways. Right. That's a nice little find there. Either way, the Rolfs eventually agree to rent the property for $900 for about two months, starting, I believe, the 1st of July. I did a rough calculation, and it looks like in today's money, that would be just under $6,000 or 3000 per month, which is significant. I think that it would be hard for a lot of people to afford that, but it seems like it's relatively inexpensive compared to what the, the Rolfs were expecting, given the size of the house and everything. But they only pay, I think, a couple hundred bucks a month for their apartment, so I'm not sure. They, they have enough money. They do say that they, like, practically empty their bank account to do this, though. Yeah, I think they had $1,500 after this oh, did $900 they? was taken out. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I guess it could clearly go a lot further. I mean, it's cutting their savings in half. Right, which is a little disturbing, although Marion mentions a couple times that she, to cover the costs, will pick up temp jobs when they're in the off-season to, to cover that, so... I think that they roughly have worked out a system that works for them. Quite a bargain still, I would say, for that size of a house. I think that it has 30 or 40 rooms. Yeah, they said something ridiculous, which I wasn't really, like, I didn't know how big to imagine the house until they said that, and that, like, blew my mind. I can't imagine what something with 40 rooms even looks like. 
And the the house on the cover doesn't really match with the actual description of the house. So, because the house on the cover almost looks like a cabin. Like, it's big, but it's not 30 to 40 rooms big. That's what I was no. picturing, too, in my head. And then they said 30 to 40 rooms. I'm like, like what? That's that's insane. Yeah, it doesn't have that um, those the separate wings as such. It's just sort of a... It works. I, I think it, it's fine, but... If you've ever been to, because there, there are certain mansions in the Northeast where you can tour, and if anybody's ever done that, then you'll kind of have that idea of, of what the scale is. It's just huge. Um, nothing that anyone would really build today. I mean, there's things that are, I guess, comparable, but it's not to the same architectural design. It's very specific. It's a lot like what you would find, I suppose, in maybe more English buildings from that time period. It's almost like an American version of a castle. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm kind of imagining the Biltmore from North Carolina, to be honest. Um, Okay. Fair. Like an estate, kind of. Maybe not to that same level, but that, like, grandeur at the very least. One thing that I... I read this really good article that we'll link, but they were talking about how this book was close to the first Haunted House book. But what set it apart was the financial aspect. It was the first time that people were trapped in a haunted house because they were, like, going to be broke otherwise, which is an element in American Horror Story. Uh, A little bit in The Shining, there's a little bit of a different circumstance and the Amityville Horror. So you're trapped in this house, not necessarily physically, but financially. Yeah, like more realistic or everyday issues that people deal with, not... uh ghost houses. It's interesting that you mentioned The Shining because this book has a lot of similarities that really, and parallels I should say, that are, I don't know if they were necessarily adapted for The Shining, but a lot of different things with the isolation, the cabin fever or psychosis that happens with the husband in both scenarios is very similar. But this book came out years, a few years before, probably six or so years before The Shining did, so... I'm I'm not entirely sure if it was a, an influence on Stephen King's work, but... He said it was. All right, well, then that's hard fact. Uh, it was, which makes sense, and it's definitely something that is worth drawing from because there's a lot of firsts, I think, that this book uh, accomplishes. I think that's why this book isn't talked about as much anymore because a lot of the things that they introduced are now tropes, so I could see things coming a mile away but this is the book that invented them. It set up a formula for books and movies to come, and I think some other books and movies maybe do some of the scares better, but it all came from here, so it's it's a good, like, horror, you know, required reading. It's kind of like why people say Seinfeld isn't funny, because Seinfeld started all these tropes, and that's why a lot of sitcoms do what they do. I think Seinfeld is hilarious, but a lot of people don't like it for the same reasons you were saying that this but Chris, book... it's a show about nothing. Exactly. Yeah, I think people who weren't around when Seinfeld was on think it's not funny, but it was funny when people were watching it, just like this book was scary when people were reading it, but it's not really all that scary to us because we've seen The Shining, we've seen Amityville, we've seen American Horror Story. We're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. Definitely. It's just kind of a little adjacent. No, it's a good uh, comparison. All right, back into chapter three here. I just want to wrap up 
Eventually, it's revealed that the Rolfs will be sharing the house with the Allardyce matriarch, who I don't believe we ever get a first name for, but I'm just going to refer to her, and I know it's a bit of a mouthful, I'm just going to say the matriarch. Uh, I think that's uh, more appropriate. So, um, though they are only instructed to leave food out for her in a specific area of the house, that's the single interaction that they are required. That's the catch, as it were, that Ben is so insistent on bringing to light. So, although before the Rolfs accept the offer of 900 bucks for the two months in the summer, David bursts into the room crying that he has fallen on the rocks out on the edge of the property and scraped his knee. Marion then snaps into action, getting a band-aid, clearing out his wounds, and the chapter ends with Walker going to put a dead plant into Roz's car, and Arnold tells him not to. He tells him to look at the plant again, and on a dead branch are two fresh shoots. And to this, Walker replies, now ain't that something? Oh, that's cool. I didn't really understand that when reading it, but now it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, a very interesting, and we'll, we can get into this more uh, later on, but it's a very interesting, just slight kind of push of the the energy and the things that the sort of transmutation that's happening with the house. I'm keeping it vague because I figure we're going to talk about that more. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we'll get into it. Okay, chapter four. The Rolfs are about to leave uh, after David gets hurt, uh, and Roz gives him a cookie. But the cookie turns out to be stale, uh, quote, just like everything in this house, according to Roz. Once back in the car, Marion attempts to get to the bottom of Ben's reason for wanting to leave so quickly. And really the only reason that he gives is that he does not like the house. And I understand it. It's it's fair. It, you know, it, it, clearly it's just from a parenting standpoint, it's not a very safe place because everything is falling apart and in need of, of major repair from the looks of it. So that aspect I understand, but I think really it's just a feeling that he has, and I think gut feelings are always something to listen to. In this case, it turns out to be correct. Not to mention, David has already gotten hurt within like 20 minutes of them being there. Exactly. And Arnold just kind of watches it happen and doesn't alert anyone to it happening. I don't remember the exact quote, but he like... He almost, like, wills it to happen because he's just looking at the kid playing and then within seconds he wipes out and Arnold doesn't say anything and then David eventually, like, makes it to the house and tells everyone that he's hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So while Marion and Ben are having a discussion about the house, David is hunting through the supplies that they brought looking for a lunch. We find out that he's unfamiliar with what chicken salad is and he audibly retches at the mention of shrimp salad which i find to be very understandable and relatable because cold shrimp bad yeah there's a lot of 70s food oh we'll get into the jello mold oh my god i was pretty grossed out when i found out what chicken salad was too but it's kind of good it's good it's it's easy to make better than tuna salad yes oh gross so, the conversation with Ben and Marion moves to the matriarch, and Ben is somewhat concerned that somebody who I believe they said is 85 or 84 only needs a tray of food three times, but... She was eating good. Yeah, she she's getting good meals. They're not giving her scraps, so it seems to be enough, but before they really know what they're getting into, I think it's it's a fair objection on Ben's part. So... 
After Ben lists his criticisms, Marion uses the treatment, or the silent treatment, to get her way. Uh, the chapter ends with Marion calling Roz and letting her know that they will take the rental starting the 1st of July. And Roz responds that Mother's going to be just fine. In the opening of Chapter 5, Arnold and Ben signed the agreement for the rental, which I thought was kind of interesting, that all parties concerned didn't sign. Although, I suppose a single representative from one side would be appropriate. There are a few weeks before the Rolfs are set to rent the property, and when Ben mentions to the principal at his school that he's going to be taking that time off. The principal, who I don't know if he's named, uh, says that Ben should get to work on his master's. I don't really know why that's being pushed so hard, but it seems like it's somewhat necessary for him to stay employed. I've got that vibe. I think you become eligible for more raises. That could be true. Okay. So as a little bit of a explanation to their friends and Loved ones, the Rolfs essentially pass out of existence for the next few months, I believe is what is quoted in the book. So somewhat telling there, but it gives more of a reason for them to be isolated. There are very few interactions with people outside of the house. So somehow everybody packs into the compact car Camaro and they put Aunt Elizabeth in the rear seat, which I think is particularly uh, cruel given her age and the fact that a backseat of a Camaro is probably just big enough for David. I would think that Miriam would have taken the bullet and ridden in the back, but Aunt Elizabeth didn't really complain too much except to say that when they got there everything was numb except for her mouth, which I thought was pretty funny. She's got spirit and I think she's an interesting character. It also turns out that she's been trying to get her driver's license for the past nine years and not really sure what that was all about, but interesting. She could sing that song. What song? The driver's License. Oh, oh, that, that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she could. The way that the uh, voice actor does, or not, I don't know, is it a voice actor? The guy who yeah. reads the book? Narrator. Yeah, the narrator. The Yeah. Uh, anyway, the way that he does Aunt Elizabeth's voice made me think of if I were to cast her in something, I would cast uh, Nathan Lane in drag. Who's Nathan Lane? The guy who plays uh, Timon. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's funny. He only gave Aunt Elizabeth a New York accent. Everyone else was just, you know, normal yeah. American. I feel like with her age and everything, it seemed like she didn't really ever go anywhere aside from New York City. So it makes sense that her accent and her speech pattern would be so heavily influenced by the way that people within the city speak. I loved her. She was great gone too soon, but we'll get to that as well. So, with this revelation about Aunt Elizabeth trying to get her driver's license for the past nine years, there's also mention of a neighbor of hers, Mrs. Brinkman, who drove into the side of her garage and then threw an adjoining window into her neighbor's front living room and actually struck that neighbor, though it's not said what condition she was in, but I'm assuming that that person lived. We don't know for sure. David assumes that the accident would have definitely killed the woman who was struck by the car, and he's insistent on it, but Ben and Aunt Elizabeth try to suppress that idea. When they finally arrive to the front steps of the house, there is an envelope full of keys and a note from the Allardyces 
saying that they had to leave earlier and that is pretty much all we're going to hear from them for a while. Later on, Marion attempts to make contact with the matriarch, but only hears the hum of what she thinks might be an in-window AC unit for the bedroom. There is, from my understanding of the layout, there's no actual reference anywhere in the book or anything as far as a drawing, but which would have been cool. But from what I understand, it's a sitting room off of the main staircase, and then another door which is then leading into the bedroom. As I said, there is no luck of actually having any conversation with the matriarch. There's just that hum, uh, which we really don't ever find out what it is, to be quite honest. So it's just one of those things that's better left described and, and not given full explanation, I suppose. Speaking of the sitting room, there are a number of photographs uh, on a table, a fairly large table, right outside of the bedroom door that have a bunch of individuals who are different ages, and they are all sort of looking with blank expressions, and none of them are smiling. Uh, There's a few even that look a bit terrified, so another strange and somewhat quirky thing about the Allardyces, or at least this house uh, in general. There is also something strange carved into the bedroom door. It's not quite clear what it is, and later on it seems to morph into different carvings and of different variety and material, so it's a little bit of a uh, shape-shifting entity, it seems like, as, as things progress. So Arnold and Roz uh, generously left enough food stocked, uh, dry goods, and things in the refrigerator for the Rolfs to really not have to do any shopping for the entire summer, although they do go into town a few times to get specific items that aren't in the house uh, that they want for different meals or snacks and whatever. Gotta keep that uh, Yankee Doodle supply up. Oh yeah, no question. The chapter ends when Miriam remembers, uh, as everyone is about to eat dinner uh, or lunch, I, I suppose, I think is actually the right timing, uh, but she remembers that she hasn't fed uh, the matriarch and runs off to prepare her meal. In chapter six, we start out uh, still in the first night with Miriam and Ben. They have sex, and Miriam gets nothing out of it. No surprise there. So afterward, Miriam takes a shower to, quote, wash the city off of her. In the morning, Ben and David go into town to get some supplies, and Ben notes that the locals aren't particularly nice. There's really not much more of an explanation on that. It's just said that no one's really friendly, and Miriam thinks that it would be a good idea to introduce themselves as somehow important, but um, Ben doesn't really seem to agree with the idea, given that they are just renting the property. They don't they don't own it, and um, it's a clear uh, separation between the thought pattern that Marion is picking up versus what what Ben is is uh, interpreting. So later on that morning, Ben and David find a cemetery with some headstones that have the last name Allardyce, so we are to assume that they are relatives of the siblings that currently own the home. In the days to come, unfortunately for Ben, his his fears and his apprehensions about the house aren't really confirmed. Everything goes smoothly. There's really no disturbances. And aside from really the fact that Marion is starting to wonder if there might not be an actual 
Mother Allardyce, if it's all sort of a strange game that Arnold and, and Roz are playing on them. But this sort of leads Marion down a rabbit hole, and she can't help but eventually start to obsess over the old woman's existence. She's sort of a she's sort of a Schrodinger's cat in this situation. Opening the box will tell you if it's one way or the other, but for right now, the matriarch is sort of in limbo as far as her actual existence. There's nothing concrete. Later on, Marion also finds a few more gray hairs that have sprouted off the temples of her head, and they're actually first uh, spotted by Ben. So somewhat alarming given that she hadn't really been going gray up until this point, but we will get into that. Finally, there's some concrete evidence about the matriarch's existence, or at least somebody existing, uh, because on, I believe, the first, within the first week, uh, eventually the breakfast that's put out has been somewhat eaten or nibbled at. So Marion is now convinced that she exists. Because most of the time the trays were left untouched and she was bringing down and throwing out like whole trays of food. Right, exactly. Up until this point, there had been no nothing done, no uh, not even a nibble taken out of the the food. But but now there's there's something. The following day, uh, Ben, Elizabeth, and David enjoy uh, some time by the pool. Ben finds a pair of eyeglasses at the bottom of the pool uh, that have a puncture in the right lens, which is a little bit strange. And the chapter ends with Ben getting a little bit aggressive with David while they're swimming. Uh, I'm not really sure what was happening. I I think Ben was throwing David up and flipping him. Um, And then David, having enough, takes his goggles and sort of blindly whips them at Ben's head and gives him a fat lip, which I think is deserved. While all this is happening, uh, Aunt Elizabeth is shocked and really concerned about David and it kind of gives more uh, of a sense of dread about Ben and and the way that he's behaving. To me, it, it sounded just sort of, as it was described, as just him kind of going too far and being too, too rough. But there's a, a bit of a, there's a definite disconnect in, in him at this point, a, a break for sure. So it is really the beginning of the end, I think, for this group of characters. It's definitely the, I thought of it as the first note that something was wrong with the house because the way Aunt Elizabeth reacts is very horrified because Ben, she knows Ben probably better than anyone and reacts like, Ben, what are you doing? So very out of character for him and obviously a very scary moment for David who has enough of it and like you said, whacks Ben in that face. Yeah, so let's talk about Ben and Marion for a bit. Overall, I think in these first six chapters or so, Marion is really taken with the house. It's clear from the beginning uh, when they first set foot onto the property. It's no secret that this is really a, a place where she wants to be. It's where she's always kind of envisioned herself and to be able to have that as a reality for these, this brief window of time. Um, is really, I think, beyond what she can imagine or could have imagined. But the whole new obsession with not just perfecting the house, but also meeting the matriarch is, is kind of interesting. It's it's somewhat fascinating. And the the fact that she's somewhat unaware of, of her, her change as far as her hair graying, and it, it takes Ben to point it out that 
you would think, I mean, there's mirrors, so you would think that, that she would at least be aware of her hair graying at the temples, but maybe not. Maybe she's just too focused on getting things in, in order and, and making sure she's got her schedule as far as the meals for the matriarch down. It's kind of distracting her from her own uh, self-care, I suppose. So before they even go to the house, she's described as like cleaning twice a week and always like getting on David's case about cleaning and dusting everything, wiping everything down. And I think when Arnold and Rise are saying that only like a special kind of people are allowed to the house, I think that kind of has to do with Marion mostly because she's such a an orderly like kind of caretaker type which fits with what the house like needs yeah and and needs in in the literal sense is is a good way to put it i think that from the beginning she's a very uh obsessive kind of person she it's she's got a one-track mind if she wants something she's going to get it and she really wants to have a status that's just not hers she wants to be able to kind of play house in this mansion even when she was kind of considering other vacation areas, she was kind of disgusted by being around people in her same, I guess, like economic class. Like, oh, I don't want to go to a cramped cabin with everyone else from Queens or wherever they're from, seeing their kids and just being cramped all over again with the same people. I want to be higher status. I want this very specific thing. And it's interesting that you said earlier that she kind of thinks that she owns the house. And people don't, people almost intentionally don't remind her of the fact that she doesn't own the house. Like, she really is getting borderline delusional about the situation that she's in and just is very obsessive about maintaining it. She's missing family events in order to clean the house. It is a very particular character, and I think the obsession as far as when they're at the apartment, her obsession with antiques is a little bit paradoxical because obviously you can find those things of higher quality but if they're you know older it could be they could be less to buy than a new version but they could also be a higher value because they are an antique so i can't really tell if she appreciates the the luxury more or the history it's not super clear but i think both of those things come into play when i was reading at first what you were saying, Grace, that she kind of wants like this higher status. I never really put together until you said that. But in the beginning, she's uh, Ben brings up that she often saves a lot of money to buy like these really expensive pieces of furniture in the really small New York apartment. Like I think they say she saves like two thousand dollars or something on a like a china cabinet or something which everyone like deserves to have nice things, but that seems like a lot for, you know, a piece of furniture in such a small apartment that they obviously don't like. Yeah, and just roughly based on your calculation earlier, that'd be like 10 grand on a piece of furniture, which would be unfeasible for most people. Like I can't, I couldn't rationalize that at this point in my life or probably ever. It's definitely excessive, but interesting because she is is never opting to take a full-time job she's only doing these temp positions and specifically to, to fuel the sort of pack rat mentality and, and the drive of that that she's working that's really what motivates her 
And that could be a status thing, too, because I'm sure, especially during that time, you know, having both the husband and the wife working, that people will assume, oh, is something wrong? Like, you're not making enough, your husband isn't making enough to support the whole family. Sure. So her taking a temp job, I feel like she, they don't say this explicitly, but that she's avoiding the appearance of not having enough wealth. I think that pretty much wraps up Marion up until this this point in the story. Uh, definitely integral uh, for the whole narrative, but we will get back to her in a bit. For now, let's move on to Ben as a character. Ben, the husband, an English teacher, as I mentioned before, someone that I assume to not have a very high level of self-esteem, someone who seems to be feeling a bit trapped, and whether he wants to admit it or not, I think that in the beginning, this vacation is definitely something that he needs, but as things move on, it turns out to be probably the worst thing for him. And I think that's evident even in just the incident that happens with the pool. I guess he mentions blacking out and not really knowing what what happened. So it's pretty disturbing, I think, and not a good sign. Um, I know that there is no real concrete evidence about a previous uh, mental break, but this is not something I would assume to be a first of its kind, although we come to find out that the house is definitely influencing everybody, so it's hard to say, for sure. It seemed like how Ben was described was definitely very frustrated with what was going on at the apartment. Like you mentioned before, there was a class or a woman or students or something that were always playing the piano at like a specific time poorly at the apartment underneath them and in one scene he just gets so fed up he just starts jumping up and down on the floor trying to like get him to stop it just seemed really childish and i don't know he my one of my first notes for him was that he just seemed really aggressive it kind of he seems to level out later in the book when he isn't dunking his kid 18 times into the pool but um yeah he 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 becomes a lot more I don't know he he's he seems a lot more tragic than I guess I even initially thought because he really cares about Marion and is very attracted to her and he loves David and Aunt Elizabeth but he with how the story plays out gets kind of burned on a lot of those relationships Ah, uh, he gets burned, you say? Uh, perhaps an offering. Ah, hmm. <laughs> Yikes. How insightful, Chris. Thank you. Hey, that's, that's why I'm here. Compared to Marion, I would say Ben would be, like, the second most important character. He's really uh, the yin to Marion's yang in a lot of ways, and I think that that is important to have had that duality going on so you can really explore both sides of an issue or uh, a conflict and then have it make sense and not just be purely untangible and unrelatable. That's a good point. He brings a lot of the how you would expect a, a rational-minded person to react in a lot of these situations where he's like where all the emotion is coming from in a lot of these scenes, especially with him and Marion. Otherwise, it would have just been like two robots talking to each other. I think you guys are being a little too nice to him. Um, even calling the previous 
encounter with uh, Marion to even define it as sex is probably wrong because he wants to sleep with her and she's very clearly not in the mood and says as much. And even though it's kind of implied that the house is making her not attracted to him anymore because she said that it's a new occurrence that she doesn't want to have sex with him, but she declines multiple times before... I don't know if she even... I mean, this is kind of a trigger warning, but before she... I don't think she even says yes once. He just has sex with her and she's just kind of there. And she's just like praying for it to end. Yeah, I mean, that definitely bothered me too. Yeah, I'm not saying it didn't bother you guys. It just was like, we were listening to the audiobook in the car and I was like, wow, I didn't expect to just hear this upsetting turn of events. Like, wow, oh, man. Yeah, it is. It's weird. I don't really know as far as... Because there's already been points of explanation as far as how the house is sort of changing everybody. But I don't know if that wasn't, you know, what the author was really intending. I don't know if, with this scene why... Um, while well, I was put in there, if they thought it was just something that was okay, you know, given the, the, the period, or if they were trying to say something more, or if it was just to give another example of how Marion is really becoming part of the house and less of the person that she was before they came, came there. Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Like, part of it is of the times where it's kind of like if your husband wants to have sex with you you say yes because he's your husband but also you get marion's thoughts and she is not enjoying the experience and is confused why so i guess that's supposed to make it better because oh she she normally says yes and is very willing and giving enthusiastic consent and here she is being like i really don't want you to touch me right now yeah, it's definitely reflective of Ben, but, well, not but, but, <laughs> um, what am I trying to say? No, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, how could you not pick up on this? Because I know both of you were upset by the scene as well, but I just wanted to give it its time. Yeah, no, it's definitely important to at least discuss. Unfortunately, it's not the only scene like that in the book, which it makes a little bit more sense in the I forget which ex- exact chapter, but it makes more slightly more sense um, as far as their character changes and and everything. But yeah, it's the, still upsetting. The second scene is less ambiguous. It's more like no, what he's doing is wrong. The other one, it's like I could I would really appreciate if the author said that this was a bad thing more explicitly. But yeah, it's it's sixty forty. I think you can <laughs> read into it that it's it's bad and. You can try to reason it out of it and say, no, it's not that bad. But I think most people would uh, agree with the, the former statements. And it parallels a lot of what happens with David in the pool. It's the same kind of thing. Just him doing something and not caring if they are against it or resistant. It's just sort of these very disturbing moments yeah. that are definitely building to more. Very so. much like The Shining, too. Yes. Yeah. All right. So that is roughly Ben and Marion up to this point and as I said we will circle back for now let's discuss chapter 7 and 8 and then we will do another brief character breakdown. Chapter 7 opens on a reoccurring nightmare or at least the explanation of a reoccurring nightmare that Ben has had about a limousine with black tinted windows that he saw as a kid picking up a family 
uh, and their relatives to take them to a funeral. For some reason, that event, although there was nothing that I could see as necessarily traumatic, but it became very much the idea of death in his mind, and it's something that he hasn't been able to shake given that as an adult now he's still having these nightmares. We get to a point where Ben just can't find sleep again, so he stays up smoking and Marion comes down to comfort and reassure him that he had no intention of actually hurting David at the pool. Uh, He's also quite upset about that, but there's really no clear resolution to that situation at this point. It's just that, for now, he's trying to understand what exactly happened because it's evident that he doesn't really know, and I think that's the most disturbing thing about the whole situation is that he has really no no memory and no idea of why. Not only that, he says he wants to hurt David and he didn't know why. It's, it's, it's interesting because I think this is one of the only instances where Marion is thinking, you know, that she can be the rational party in all of this because she wasn't there, so she can be objective and just say from obviously knowing her husband and knowing her son that there was really no ill will from Ben towards David. So I don't know if that's a solid argument, but it's at least the way that she rationalizes it. When she was talking with Ben about that incident, it seemed to me like she was minimizing it which is something that she's like is a line in the book. She tried to put it out of her mind and with it, the sudden unnerving thought that she might be minimizing the incident for the sake of the house to protect their summer. So I I don't know. She was being almost like extra irrational to me about that incident, not for like as her character, but like something that's happening to her, causing her to not want to really address the issues of what Ben did to David in the pool. It makes sense, though. Like, there are definitely times, you know, growing up where things would happen. Like, you'd be having a nice time, and then, you know, you start fighting with your siblings or something, and you, someone kind of is like, no, we're having a good time. Let's let's stop this. Let's ignore it. Let's move on so we can all continue to have a nice time. It's not the most healthy reaction to something, but it's it's it, it seemed relatable. Yeah, I, I, maybe I was just looking it through a lens of something's already is supernaturally happening to her, and she was prioritizing the house again over her family. In, in the morning, uh, Marion decides to eat the food that the matriarch hasn't touched uh, for her breakfast in order to make the fasting seem less disturbing. She then goes out to the pool and throws the broken glasses that Ben found the previous afternoon into the trash, which I think was, again, one of those situations where we have a bit of a unexplained situation or thing. We, we have nothing to go off as far as what these glasses are. I'm somewhat leaning toward the idea that they were Arnold's and they were in the pool because that was the area where he had this accident, but could have also been from previous renters. We don't know. So that's just my theory. Yeah, I thought it was previous renters as well because I was thinking like, okay, so there was a at least, I think they said there were men's glasses, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just assumed like, oh, there was another kid and dad that got killed here or injured here because the, the bloody bike and the glasses. That's what I was going to say. It was like a connection with the bike or at least like another like foreshadowing but I think you're right, Walker, that Marion is trying to 
hide things in order to pretend that everything's okay. Like, sees the glasses and is like, I'm gonna hide these. Sees that the uh, the matriarch isn't eating. I'm gonna hide this so no one is disturbed, so I can stay here. Yeah, anything to, like you said, maintain an even keel and an upbeat and happy summer. It would appear that the pool had magically repaired its filtering system overnight, and the cracks in the concrete around the pool have also been repaired. Kind of grossed me out, because I'm like, wait, they were swimming in a pool that had, like, no filter, and they said it was, like, gross, and there was cracked concrete around it and at the bottom. After walking outside and checking on the pool, Miriam goes back and starts to work on fixing the library so that Ben can use it as an office for his studies. At this point, Ben is now 100% focused on his work in the, the library, and Aunt Elizabeth finishes the painting that she'd started, which is titled The Summer. Uh, the original title is in French, and I am afraid to try and pronounce it so that is all you're going to get from me. Yeah, none of us studied French, so you're out of luck. She then moves on to working on a painting titled Time Past. Again, originally in French, and I will not be pronouncing that name either. The family at this point has been in the house a total of nine days. Marion finds two rusted wheelchairs when exploring the basement as she's looking for things to put in the sitting room that's just outside of the matriarch's bedroom. Gray patches of hair have appeared at the base of her neck now in combination with the gray, what I assume to be stripes, happening at her temples. Ben and Miriam go out to the pool and go skinny dipping. And again, Ben attempts to have sex with Marion, but at this point she stops him and we're led to believe it has something to do with the house. There is something that is just in the back of her head telling her that it is inappropriate and wrong. The whole time she keeps having these thoughts about the matriarch seeing her or like knowing what's going on, which is, yeah, off of the house being a reason that she's not really all that interested. And and from a general perspective i'm not really sure why if we sort of take her not wanting to have sex as a is being just purely based on the the house and its influence on her why it would be the house wouldn't want that if that makes sense or why the matriarch wouldn't want that i don't really know the reasoning for it without getting too much into it it seems like the house feeds off negative interactions or pain almost i think the house wants marion and ben to be against one another so it's going to be easier for marion to not have any emotional ties to her family by the end right like marion's priority needs to be the house and not ben yeah so the house is making her kind of disgusted by ben and making ben more sexually aggressive to make them no longer compatible yeah to push that needle i get okay that makes sense I just, I don't know why it took, it just didn't really equate while I was reading it. I, I read it a couple times, but yeah, it didn't really match up a whole lot. I, mean, I guess vaguely I had that same notion, but it wasn't super concrete. Yeah, I think it's a combination of it feeding off, the house feeding off of negative energy and also the house trying to isolate Marion. The next morning, Marion stumbles upon a closet full of 
silver and gold flatware and candlestick holders. The chapter ends with Ben taking it upon himself to clip the bushes that line the driveway. And as he's doing so, he has an episode, for lack of a better word, where he imagines the limousine that he's had this consistent nightmare about bumping into him. And he decides to hightail it back to the house. So he comes back to the house and, like, hours have passed. Is that because of the hallucination where he blacks out and he's been out there for a long time, like, is covered in sweat, but actually didn't do anything? Yeah, my my assumption is that he's just, like, standing there. Oh, God, that's so creepy. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he mentions later when he, like, walks past those bushes that it's like he never even cut them. It's almost like the house is trapping them from leaving because it's the driveway, so you have to, you know clear that to leave yeah well we'll we'll get into that but right the the way that it's built up with him first having the trimming shears and then he takes out this big knife it's sort of building up that sort of visceral feeling and i was very concerned that he was going to lose a digit or cut himself or something and it didn't happen but i was 100 percent waiting for that shoe to drop i'm glad it wasn't a what is it called a checkoff's gun where it's like Oh, if there's garden shears, they're going to be used to mutilate someone. They didn't, and I'm glad. He says, I found, like, the sort of area that it starts happening where he has this vision of the car. A trick, he told himself, a hallucination. Yeah, yeah, so that's how Chapter 7 ends. Chapter 8 opens with Aunt Elizabeth's routine. We kind of get more of an insight into her character. I think this is really the first time we're in her mindset, we're we're with her completely. So it's elaborated that her routine and energy seem to have both slipped a little bit as the days have gone on in the house on Shore Road. The pains of a full day are now being soothed by an afternoon nap and a somewhat less strong martini at the end of the day. For one reason or another, Aunt Elizabeth really wants to make friends or at least meet the matriarch, so she decides to show her one of her paintings. It's explained that she misunderstood when Marion said that there were a lot of pictures in the the room just off of the matriarch's bedroom. Uh, She assumes that they're drawings uh, or paintings, but they're actually photographs. Just as Aunt Elizabeth is about to... Just as Aunt Elizabeth is about to open the door to the sitting room. Marion pulls it open and politely tells her to leave because the matriarch is sleeping. For this, there's also mentioned that the five steps from Aunt Elizabeth's room up the main stairway to the matriarch's door are quite difficult when they really shouldn't be, adding to the overall impression that she's declining pretty rapidly as far as her health and energy. Yeah, she seemed to be very ashamed that she took a nap in the middle of the day. She's very young at heart. Yeah, I think she kept saying something like, age is a state of mind, I am I can still do all these things. And even like all that way back when she's talking about still trying to keep her driver's license, she just really wants to keep her independence and mobility. But the house seems to be advancing it even quicker, like her aging process. Yeah, sucking the life out of her. It's almost like it knows that she's she's got the least amount of charge and will be the easiest to drain. It's it's sort of taking advantage of that. Which is interesting because it seems the house seems to affect David like the least kind of off that idea. 
because David's kind of just living his life like normal around these older people that are kind of losing it. He's definitely, I would say he's still acting like a kid, but he kind of seems to be a lot of the times distracted because he's either watching the TV or he's playing with his Hot Wheels cars or he he was at the pool. So he's really, and I think it makes sense because he is just a kid, but he's very much unaware of the more adult things that are happening. He, He doesn't really, I don't think fully process the point that his parents that the relationship between his parents is crumbling as as the days go on but i think the only change is after the pool incident he's pretty skittish around his dad until his dad apologizes so there's like a few days where he's hanging around um the women of the family a lot more because he doesn't know where he stands with his dad because he feels a little guilty that he hurt his dad because in his mind, because he's a child, he's like, well, I did something bad because I hurt my dad, not my dad was hurting me and I was just defending myself. So I think he's kind of still learning that balance of right and wrong. So he doesn't, he, he feels just as guilty. I think he's, yeah, he's definitely kind of in shock about what happened or so processing. It doesn't really know, like you said, where he stands with his dad. Yeah, and then the process of just trying to let it go to have a nice vacation is just making it worse because no one's talking about it and saying, like, oh, well, until um, Ben apologizes, no one says, like, what your dad did was wrong and he shouldn't have done that and it's okay and he's sorry. They don't have, you know, a mature conversation about it. So he's left on his own to process it. So meanwhile, while Aunt Elizabeth and Marion are in a bit of a standoff ben comes back to the house and is surprised by the amount of time that's passed from when he first went out to trim the the hedges and now it's been a couple of hours and from what we can tell he doesn't really have any recollection of that time the following scene ben momentarily is distracted by david talking about the hot wheels track that he had been working on and, sh- and showing him a demonstration and Ben more or less says it's all well and good and and just sort of walks past him at that point. He then moves to the kitchen and grabs a cream soda from the fridge and Marion apologizes for how she was acting the night before and following that apology she shows Ben all of the silver and gold flatware and candlesticks that she found. So it kind of feels like her exclamation of being miserable all day doesn't really hold much water because she's very much excited about finding these items in the, in the closet and it makes her come across as a little bit less genuine with that sentiment yeah that's that's kind of what ben says he said he was like looking for any evidence that she was miserable seeing all these different pieces being like pristine and glowing now ben is also plagued by constant headaches and those come into play during the evening when he's trying to sleep. His attempts at sleep are interrupted by the shadow of a figure crossing the threshold outside of their bedroom, and he opens the door and finds that David's door, which is never closed, is now shut, and he also smells gas coming from the room, so he has to forcibly open the door and quickly throws the window open to gets some fresh air into the room and then holds David out the window so he can breathe properly. And it's a very um, sort of sudden 
scene. Uh, there's really no build-up to it. It just sort of happens. A, a bit of drama there, but they call the doctor that's listed on the letter that the Allardyces had left, and he essentially says that well, there's a gas leak, it's either you're dead or you're not, and because of that, he says that David should be fine, but he can talk to them in the morning because at this point, I believe it's around 1.30 or 2 o'clock at night. So he's very upset by this call, even though I think that as a physician, you should be more um, expectant of emergency situations like this and maybe try not to be so harsh about a near-death situation that happened to people that you don't even really know. So the following day, Marion is told by Aunt Elizabeth that she went into David's room the night before. She admits that occasionally she would go in there and put the comforter or the covers back on David if he'd kicked them off. And while she doesn't believe that she would have done anything with the gas heater because that was the source of the gas, the, the heater was cranked all the way open and I guess it was just pouring into the room. But she claims not to have done anything with the heater and doesn't think that there should be any reason that she's accused of trying to hurt David. And it's very believable. I think that it's strange for Marion to make that accusation, especially because there's been no hint of uh, anything other than love for, for David from Aunt Elizabeth. So it's just a little odd. And another tip about Marion and, and sort of her mental state, as it were. So after this, Aunt Elizabeth gets upset with Marion, and it's justifiable. So she tells her that she'll be in her room, and if Ben wants to see her, she'll she'll be there. So she leaves, and Marion is left in the greenhouse trying to figure out which plants are salvageable that she can lay out in the matriarch's sitting room. Later on, Ben tries to get Marion to talk with Aunt Elizabeth, offering to take the matriarch's lunch to her, but Marion is having none of that. She is very insistent that she has to be the one to deliver the lunch and any food given to the matriarch. It would appear at this point that the door to the matriarch's room has changed, taking on gold facets and a huge medallion. The silverware that Marion found is also displayed in the sitting room, along with the flowers from the greenhouse. This chapter ends when Ben confronts Marion while she's delivering the matriarch's lunch. He tells her about the hallucinations he's been having and insists that they need to leave the house. Marion gaslights him into believing that the house has nothing to do with what's happening to his mental state, and the issue is dropped. So, let's talk about Aunt Elizabeth. I agree with you that that scene where Marion and Aunt Elizabeth are talking, its it was very frustrating to read because both of them were having reactions that I wasn't expecting. Because Aunt Elizabeth is like coming to Marion, weeping and saying like, I was in David's room that night. But then seconds later is like, how dare you accuse me of doing that to David when that's kind of the obvious conclusion that you can make. Because she's coming crying, because she, she has something to get off of her chest, and then is kind of feeling betrayed that Marion implies something that she was implying as well. I, I see what you're saying, that Marion was saying that she was, she almost did it, like, intentionally, and that's what was upsetting to Elizabeth. Um, that whole interaction, Marion was, seemed to me, 
really cold. Like, there was very little emotion I felt from her. She was just kind of kind of just stating facts, almost. Like you were saying, that that would be the most obvious conclusion to jump to. And that's what Marion says, like, right away. Yeah, I, I suppose that it is really cold. And just the entire conversation revolving around... Aunt Elizabeth's age, I'm sure, is sensitive, and she wasn't being sensitive about it. She's like, oh, well, you are getting old. You forget things, or, you know, and because we've just been in Aunt Elizabeth's head, we know that that's a very sore subject. She's definitely aware of it. It's not something that she's trying to deny, but she is has convinced herself, and I think rightly so, that if your will is strong enough, you can be more lively than your age might suggest. So. Yeah. I agree, but mind over matter can only get you so far. It's kind of strange that her age has made such an issue because I guess I didn't really think that being 70 would be thought of as that old, but maybe it, it was. I mean, it's getting there. The fact that she lives alone and is so independent, I think, is where a lot of that concern comes from. Because if you were 70-ish with you know, living with somebody or had somebody there with her, then it wouldn't be all that much. Right. Yeah, and this is before cell phones and life alert. Chapter 9 opens with David breaking a crystal ball and Marion yelling that you're not to touch her things, meaning the matriarch. And this outburst is interesting because, again, it's it's sort of a another piece of the puzzle that is Marion's connection to the house, but it also can be understood as sort of her frustration with Aunt Elizabeth and with Ben and how that's affecting her. So there are there are multiple motivations for this outburst, but it's clear that the biggest influence is the house and the effect that the matriarch is having on Marion. In the evening, Ben goes to get Aunt Elizabeth for their ritual martini, and by this point, Elizabeth is so weak that getting out of bed on her own is practically impossible, so she's really declined since even the morning, and it's not clear if at this point what happens when Ben leaves and she's trying to get up on her own, because she's thinking that her arm is going to break, and believe that's what happens, but the book's not entirely clear about it. Either way, we cut to Ben and Marion outside. Marion has on a dress that Ben has never seen before. It's not explained where she got it, but my assumption is that she found it in the house and decided to wear it, but we never get that exact answer, so it's a little bit up in the air. Prior to them enjoying their martinis, Ben and Marion get on the subject of her hair turning gray and Ben mentions that all of his gray is on the inside, and that is on page 167. Ben cuts his drinking short to check on Aunt Elizabeth because he's concerned, and he finds her near death with her right arm sort of crumpled underneath her, and she, at this point, I believe, is passed out because of uh, the pain, and we get a little bit uh, from Marion's point of view where... There's a quote that says, Right now, Ben and Aunt Elizabeth and everything else existed only to keep her away from the comfort of the sitting room. Ben, at this point, tries to call the doctor, but all the lines seem to be busy, and he comes back visibly frustrated and concerned that Aunt Elizabeth is going to 
die, and Marion seems to be also concerned about that, but with the fact that it's she's going to be dying in the matriarch's home, that is more upsetting to her. So in an attempt to correct the situation, Marion then goes to call the doctor and is able to get through and the doctor implies that at Aunt Elizabeth's age, health is often a highly fragile thing. At this point, Marion relays that message, and Ben is sure that if they move her that she's going to die, so he just waits by her side, and Marion decides to return to the sitting room because she's more comfortable there and is not very interested in being part of the situation that is currently happening. So she leaves and goes back to the sitting room, deciding to eat the dinner that she'd put out for the matriarch, which is the first time that she's done that in the actual sitting room as opposed to when she took the food away and ate it in the kitchen. Ben is again struck with a crippling headache while Marion is sitting in the sitting room and enjoying the lovely floral fragrances of all the flowers and looking out upon all of the different photos that are laid out in front of her. The chapter ends with Aunt Elizabeth passing away and the doctor calling back and telling them that he can't seem to find 17 Shore Road. I think that whole quote's actually pretty interesting. I'll be damned if I can find any 17 Shore Road as long as I've lived here. Where in God's name are you? Which really creeped me out when I read that. Long is italicized in that quote. And it's described as the doctor being really, like, pretty old, you know? Like, really cranky old guy. So I picture really wrinkled, white-haired guy. And just the fact that he didn't know where it was at. Like, if anyone would know where it's at, it would probably be him. It's like they're cut off from the rest of the world if they're not the one leaving. Right, and that doctor was the one that the Allardyces wrote on the piece of paper, so you would assume that he's their doctor. And has at least visited the property before. It almost seemed like, had they not gone to see the doctor after um, David's accident, I would have assumed that it was all made up by the house. That was kind of a thought I had, too, when it said Ben tried calling and he couldn't even get through an operator. I was wondering if Marion ever even called anybody in the first place. But the fact that they actually visited him, I guess, the phone only works for her. I don't know. Still pretty interesting, though. Yeah, the phone thing was weird because then Ben all of a sudden was like, oh, don't you get it? It's just my hallucinations that are making me think that there's no connection. That was kind of confusing for me. I had a note similar to that. He said, the phone's out in a word. Surprise. And I was like, what do you mean surprise? Like, is that a surprise? Like, he's talking to her? Like, aren't, are you not surprised? Or, like, why, why, like, surprise just really stuck out to me. I think he was probably, obviously he's agitated. So I was assuming that it was just him being sort of short with her. And, you know, it's the implication that when everything goes wrong, it all goes wrong kind of thing. And it's just sort of that same idea but he's also very upset with Marion because she doesn't really care about Aunt Elizabeth she only cares about the house at this point in chapter 10 during the days that follow Aunt Elizabeth's death Marion gets the feeling that Ben blames the house and by extension her for Aunt Elizabeth's death 
Ben and David leave for the funeral, and Marion convinces herself that she needs to stay in the house. After Ben and David leave, Marion tells the matriarch that they've gone before discovering a picture of Aunt Elizabeth in the sitting room. Later on, Marion hears footsteps beyond the matriarch's bedroom door and is convinced that now she'll be able to talk to her, but that does not happen. Ben and David eventually return four days after the funeral, and Marion and Ben fight outside that night while the roof slowly crumbles and produces brand new tiles. Yeah, that was a pretty intense scene. At one point, Ben says, would it have been better if we didn't come back at all? And she thinks, yeah, probably would have if you haven't come back. And when I read that, I didn't know if it was a a selfish reason or like a selfless reason, like you would have been better off not coming back or yeah, I don't want you here. Ben at that point starts asking Marion to like leave or that Ben is thinking of taking David and leaving and that he is asking her to decide over them or the house. And Marion literally says, I can't, I can't. God, don't you see that yet? I can't. Not I won't. She can't, like physically can't do it. It seems like she, even she is starting to realize she doesn't have a lot of choice in her relationship with the house anymore. At first it seemed very voluntary and then slowly became less and less so. It's also during that fight that Ben is really the only one to notice the shingles on the roof changing. He asks Marion point blank, he says, don't you see? And she is confused and, and asks what he's talking about what, what, what do you mean what am I supposed to see and uh, it's just another clear telling of of her disconnect and Ben also not being able to know if he can trust what he's seeing because of his hallucinations and the missing time that he's he's had up until this point so he can't know for certain if his judgment is any better than hers but he's at least trying to substantiate that they are both experiencing the same reality but Marion isn't really interested in, in that. Yeah, it says she refused to look or to hear, not that she, like, physically didn't. I don't know if that's exactly what the author's saying, but refused is kind of an interesting word. So, later that night, as Chris mentioned, Ben and David attempt to, to leave, but surprise, surprise, the killer bushes are back with a vengeance. <laughs> And they've somehow grown over the entire driveway and blocked the path. And Ben is unable to break through them with the Camaro. So they essentially wreck the car. And it's not really explained how they get back to the house. But Marion comes running down the driveway. And my assumption is that she helps both of them back to the property. The chapter ends with Ben seeing the limo again from his nightmare. Chapter 11, we start off with Marion getting very excited because she thinks that the Allardyces have returned, that Roz and Arnold are back because she sees their, their car in the driveway, but it turns out just to be Walker. At this point, Marion is sort of at her wit's end. She's very much wanting to leave and get out of the rental and take her family out of the situation. But Walker somewhat convinces her and makes a very compelling argument, at least from her perspective, asking, would you give up everything? You know, would you do it all for her? 
meaning the matriarch. More or less, she she sees the somewhat twisted logic to that that idea that she has now become fully in the service of the matriarch and the house by extension. Later on that afternoon, Ben and David are back at the pool, and Marion is inside, I believe, dropping off lunch for the matriarch. At this point, David is trying to prove to his dad that he's, in fact, learned how to swim. I should mention that after the nightmare that Ben has, he is more or less in a coma. He can't see and is really unresponsive. But back at the pool, David is trying to show him that he actually has has learned how to swim. So he takes the floaty that he's been using and throws it out of the pool, attempting to swim on his own. But he ends up drowning. And Ben, while in his near comatose state, sees David drowning and he attempts to save him. But he falls out of his chair and hits his head on on the concrete, and it's assumed that because of this injury, he, he dies. So both David and Ben are dead at this point, and we switch back to Marion in the house, sort of accepting things and going back to the sitting room, seeing the pictures of Ben and David, and being somewhat comforted by that. And finally, the door to the matriarch's bedroom is open, and Marion appears to take her place. The last chapter ends with the Allardyces actually returning, and Roz and Arnold take pictures of the house and tell Walker to hang them with the rest in the entranceway. That is Burnt Offerings, in a nutshell. Now, there's obviously things that we've missed, and I'm sure you guys have plenty to go over. Uh, I had a few questions that I wanted to start with, and then we can kind of get into a bigger discussion. By some miracle, Arnold is able to rise from his wheelchair at the very end of the novel, and it's kind of what I wanted to lead in my first few questions here. Really Charlie and the Chocolate Factory moment? (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah yeah no no doubt about it point blank i just wanted to ask i'm sure you'll have your own opinion but do you guys think that Roz and brother and walker are immortal i i don't know they, they don't really seem to exist out of the house so maybe they're ghosts or something um because well walker's the caretaker supposedly but obviously he doesn't really take care of the house I got the impression that they definitely weren't, like, real in some kind of, like, tangible sense. I think whatever the house is, they are too, because they were able to be revived as the house was being revived. Right. Maybe Arnold couldn't have actually walked before the Rolfs got there, but then after the house got repaired, he kind of got repaired in a way too. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, and I don't think that... They appear to get any younger, but there is some weird rejuvenation that happens. Uh, I also had written down, and we kind of touched on this, why are they not affected by the house? Who is Walker, really? Um, And I think, unfortunately, kind of to Grace's earlier point, because a lot of this stuff is done to death nowadays, the book, to me, felt a little bit unsatisfying. Because really, all we have happen is Marion coming into the bedroom and this woman who we believe to be the matriarch sort of 
dissolving and leaving room for her to go and take her place and then that's it yeah it's kind of i don't know what you guys were kind of like expecting through the story but that's kind of what i saw the end game being yeah i would have wanted a little bit more explanation on who arnold and Roz and walker were like at least to the house like what role they actually played instead of just finding people to take care of it i was just a little relieved because after seeing the cover art all I was thinking was, please don't be a native burial ground. Please don't be a native burial ground. Please. I can't handle it. I don't want to have to talk about that. But I, I kind of had a theory that anyone who pledges their allegiance to the house becomes tied to it in some way and becomes immortal. And I think the book tries to incorporate all of the other souls that it's taken into the idea of the matriarch as well with those sort of final chanting lines when Marion finally steps into the room, our mother, our darling, restored to us in all her dearness, her glory, her beauty, her youth, she returned always with us, always, always, always. It's like she's not the first and she's not going to be the last is kind of all that really ended on. So, well, that kind of leads me to wonder if the matriarch was originally the person, like, actually their mom or if it was the house itself you know or if it was like a monster house situation if you guys ever seen that movie the old animated one <laughs> many times yes yeah where like she died in the house and basically became the house yeah it's possible it's the interesting thing too that i made note of and one of the few tropes i felt like weren't expressed in this book uh was that the family didn't really come into the situation with any kind of trauma uh, unless you count horrendous piano music <laughs> but uh, aside from that there's really nothing to point to and say oh hey they're all trying to get over this event you know it's not like our previous episode on american horror story there's nothing really weighing down this family they're burnt out from their like mundaneness in new york the, yeah, they're burnt out. That's a yeah, it's it's very interesting you say that, Chris. Oh my yeah. god. Oh my gosh. End of uh, end of episode. Thanks everyone Goodbye. for listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I think the only trauma to speak of would be just being poor or working class, because I, and from this art the same article I talked about before. There's a really good quote that I liked where they said, "What Marion doesn't realize is that she's not the owner of this house." She's its servant. Her summer is spent on her knees, waxing floors, dusting picture frames, repairing damage. To her, it's an act of ownership, but it is made clear by the end she can never escape her station. It seemed like there was a lot more, and I said this earlier too, there's a lot more of a class uh, undertone to the entire situation. The driving force is like upward mobility. Yeah, because Mary keeps saying like, this is what she wanted. Like this is all she's ever wanted. And Ben and David obviously don't really seem to think the same way or feel the same way. But Marion is definitely like, this is what I was meant to do. Almost to a ridiculous extent where it's like kind of funny at first where she's walking into the house, going on the tour and seeing that all the plants are dead and she gets legitimately emotional about it as if she has any stake in the situation. And the author even said that the book was supposed to originally be a dark comedy, but then he said once he finished it, it just was dark. 
But you do see those elements of, like, it's bordering on satire how much Marion cares about the house and the things in it. That being said, how Marion feels about the house, I also feel about my Animal Crossing village. So, <laughs> I think I have sold my soul there a little bit. Well, your hair isn't starting turning gray yet, so I think you're okay. Well, a little bit. But that's genetics. It's kind of funny, Marion's reaction to the house and how much she adores everything she finds. Like the the gold flatware and the candlesticks and everything, because... And maybe this is just because I have a bad attitude. I'd be kind of bitter seeing all those things. I'd be like, oh, look at all this like stuff that they just shoved in a closet that I could never afford in my entire life. Well, I definitely wouldn't take all that stuff out and clean it. Yeah, I'd be like, screw you. I don't want to do this. This isn't my job. Right. I'm here on a vacation. But it seems like Marion, even before all this happens, kind of enjoys doing that stuff. It's just... Ex- exacerbated like after she goes to the house it's definitely become part of her identity as far as the need to tidy things constantly and make sure everything is just so and it's obviously a lot easier to do that in a small new york city apartment but the prospect of having that same task multiplied a hundredfold is appealing because it it gives her a, a purpose something to work towards so i think there's a lot of need for accomplishment when it comes to that she even says at one point when ben is having trouble with his master's thesis he says that you don't just think of one and she says well i don't know i'm just dumb and it's really mm-hmm. the only time that that's stated but it's interesting I was expecting more of like, I mean, there's definitely an escalation of how obsessed she is with the house, but it seems like immediately she's obsessed with the house to the point of it being really like obvious, you know, where like for the, for example, like with the pool incident, like Marion was supposed to be out there with them, but like Ben kept asking like, oh, you should come out with us and get out of the house and have a good time in the, the, the sun or whatever. And she says, yeah, 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 I'll be out there. And then never comes out there. And obviously it was kind of a point to Ben that she was being so obsessed with the house. But that was like, I think like the first week they were there that she was already fully obsessed with the house. And I think that obsession and that connection comes really from proximity to the matriarch's room. It's very much like a, a magnet in a lot of ways because Marion's the only one who ever delivers the food. And when Aunt Elizabeth is right outside in the sitting room, right after that is when she can't get out of bed anymore. And Ben, at near the end of the book, also confronts Marion in the sitting room. And that's right before his total comatose state. So it's almost like a weird protection for the house and also source of the power generating. It's the epicenter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she says it at one point in regards about the sitting room. To Marion, it had become the very center of the house, the room closest to the core. Just as the rounded bay somewhere beyond the carved door was architecturally the house's unifying principle. Yeah, a story with a lot of firsts and a lot of interesting elements that I don't think are have necessarily been replicated it's again one of those that can be lumped in with 
The Shining and A Haunting on Hill House and what was the other? American Horror Story, Amityville. Um, honestly, one thing I was going to bring up is it reminds me a lot of the movie The Lighthouse in a different way, but has similar beats. And I don't want to, you know, spoil anything there, but... Yeah. If we, yeah, I think if you attribute that sort of divine aspect to the matriarch, then it makes more sense for that comparison. Do we think she was ever a physical entity, going back to Chris's question? There's so little to go off of. I don't know if it's fair to speculate. Yeah, that's what's kind of frustrating. I kind of just think as our mother, like our darling mother, whatever, as like the house, because when Walker comes back, he like basically says to become our mother and it's said that walker isn't like related to Roz and arnold so why is he saying our mother too because if it was an actual person then he wouldn't be saying that right right it's like a goddess or a demon or something yeah it, it's clear that based on how arnold and Roz treat him that walker is somehow beneath them at least in the way that they understand things at one point i thought maybe he was like a previous tenant kind of like marion who was like really obsessed with the house but nothing gives you that impression so no he he yeah he i don't know it's hard to say because in the beginning chris had mentioned you know he's very much focused on marion from the beginning of their introduction and he seems to be pleased that she's going to be staying and so it's it's really hard to say what exactly the three of them are about, but I think it works. It works for the story. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts that anybody had? I did have one more quote from the article that I liked. If social and political anxiety spawns zombies, economic anxiety gives birth to haunted houses, and Morosco created the now common real estate nightmare haunted house scenario, a cash-strapped family or individual gets a deal on a place that's above their socioeconomic station. Hoping to make a fresh start, they go all in and in short order realize that their attempt to buy a better life at a discount is the worst decision they ever made and all they can do is run for their lives, abandoning their investment. It's almost kind of punishing people for trying to get ahead. Yeah, because all like you were saying, Walker, there really is no trauma that they were trying to like work through. They just were basic you know, middle-income, lower-end family that wanted a nice summer away to decompress, and they got punished for it. Wow, what a bummer. Yeah, yeah, but... How dare they ask for something nice. Right. So I mentioned before that there was something I kind of wanted to bring up about Marion and her, like, lucidity in the, uh, like, the story. Because, like, we mentioned, like, right off the bat, she's very obsessed with the house doesn't really seem to have any like will of her own um there's a quote where after she kind of gets in an argument with ben about aunt elizabeth um they say that they love each other and she says and if she had given in to the impulse the moment it flashed through her mind if it had lingered just a fraction of a second longer then she would have said it to him. If you love me, then for God's sake, help me. Which I thought was pretty creepy. Obviously, like, she's in there somewhere. Whenever, like, that thing's going on with Aunt Elizabeth in the bed and she and Marion goes back to the greenhouse where she and Aunt Elizabeth had that fight, 
She said the name aloud, Aunt Elizabeth, and felt something coil inside her. She realizes, like, what's actually happening. Yeah, I think at that point, after the argument with Aunt Elizabeth, the greenhouse springs fully to life. It was definitely a slow burn. It took, like, halfway through the book to get to any of the, like, supernatural horror stuff. All before that was kind of just, like, set up. And it's a pretty short book anyways. Yeah, only... 218 pages and a quick read at that yeah i i i liked it it took a while for me to get into but like at that halfway point is when it really started like rolling you know for sure yeah i agree with grace i think it's it's definitely one of those that you should read eventually doesn't have to be your first horror novel but if it is i don't think that's a bad thing it'll probably make it more uh gripping if it is your first one because none of the things are like oh yeah seen that a million times all right guys well thank you for taking your time to go through this saga with me and i hope that anybody listening if you're at all interested i would highly recommend that you pick up either a physical copy or the audiobook of burnt offerings and with this name change, it's become a little harder for new listeners to find us. We would really love it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to write a review because for some reason that really boosts our exposure, um, How, well, however Apple's algorithm works. But um, we would really appreciate that. Be sure to follow us on social media at Our Warped Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch. If you were already following the old account, you wouldn't need to follow us again because I just changed the name of all of them. Thanks again to Dynamo for our great cover art. I have her accounts listed in the show notes, so go give her a follow. And if you want to follow another artist on Instagram, you can go to Chris Ambrose 80 I draw spooky stuff in this vein or monsters or whatever you might like. Yeah, we've got some exciting things coming up. We hope you guys stick with us, and you can follow me to the pool where I'll be relaxing all summer. Bye! Bye. thank our sponsor beans beans they're delicious try some